I've got a quick question for you before we get started today. Were there any outstanding presentations at the last Master Brewers District meeting you attended? I bet there were. Well, we'd like to share those stories with listeners, but we need your help. Unless they attended that same district meeting, Master Brewers members, including me, will never know about these outstanding presentations unless they get uploaded to the Master Brewers District Presentations Archive. So next time you sit in on a really great presentation, ask your district officers if you can help them get the presentations uploaded. It's super easy. There's even a short how-to video link at the top of the archive. And if there's a presentation that you think we should highlight here on the show, shoot me a quick message. You can find me at community.mbaa.com. This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Let's go! 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 Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand-new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Okay, we've got these things. They're all similar. They're all making similar claims. Do they actually hold up over time? Uh, And do we see if there's differences in in where those are, are coming from? This week on the show, we bring you an episode recorded during our live event at the 2019 Master Brewers Conference in Calgary. Hi, my name is Matt Linsky. I am the lead microbiologist at Brewing and Distilling Analytical Services, currently operating BDAS Denver. Uh, just opened there a couple months ago. And I'm here today to talk about an evaluation of fan farber diastaticus media for STA1 positive or diastaticus yeast in the brewery. Okay, Matt, so I think by now everyone listening has heard of diastaticus, even if they haven't directly encountered it in their brewery. Uh, you joined us for a two-part series on diastaticus back on episodes 68 and 69. This time, we're talking about a, def- a, detec- a specific detection method. Tell us what you wanted to study here. Uh, so after some of my research last summer, uh, I kind of contacted a bunch of different yeast providers to get my hands on some yeast that had this characteristic. So we're talking specifically about uh, yeast that carry the STA1 gene. Uh, this is an uh, enzyme that causes over-attenuation uh, in, in normally produced beers and, yeah, as you mentioned, can be a huge issue for people. Uh, I thought this was a very novel thing for our industry. Uh, typically doing strain analysis is, is pretty difficult and we finally have a test now with PCR analysis and, and trying to evaluate some of these plating techniques uh, where we can really hone in on, on, this, on this singular characteristic and, and something that is 
you know, very, very problematic. So uh, after the work I did last year, I reached out to Dr. Farber uh, to see if he and I could collaborate and, and really do some, some in-depth validation of the media that he had developed and presented on last year. What are some of the claimed benefits of FPDM that you wanted to evaluate? Uh, so specifically, um, they have uh, stated that FPDM is going to recover uh, STA1 positive yeast better than LCSM or Linz-Kuprick sulfate media, which is commonly used in the breweries currently. Uh, also looking at um, the strains that are actually able to degrade starch, because I think there's been some discrepancies between people's experience, you know, questions about does STA1 positive mean it is actually going to over-attenuate? Uh, and so one of the things that uh, Matt had claimed with this media was that you would see a zone of clearing around those. Um, unfortunately, we didn't really get to investigate that aspect of the media very much. We were really more kind of working through some of the recommended handling procedures uh, over the course of what we ended up doing this, this last year. Okay, and you put FPDM up against some other traditional media. Give us a little more details about that. Sure. So, uh, like I said, Linz Kuprick sulfate media has been used very commonly uh, by microbiologists in the brewing industry, Kuprick sulfate being the main compound in that that inhibits typical brewing strains. And it just so happens that there's a very strong correlation with, within the yeast that are STA1 positive. They also have good copper resistance. And so that media had been used primarily as a screening technique for finished package peers, for in-process beers, and also looking at yeast slurries. So uh, what Matt's media had tried to do was kind of take that as a base, um, make it a little bit more specific for STA1 yeast by having starch as the sole carbon source, whereas there's some other simple sugars that are in LCSM, and uh, make something that is really, uh, you know, better more and more selective for uh, looking at these STA1 yeast than, than Linz Cooper sulfate media alone. Okay, and um, you worked with uh, several other yeast labs, uh, and, and used over, I think, 30 different strains during this study. Give us some examples. Uh, stuff that people are pretty familiar with. Uh, you know, we've got a good number of yeast from White Labs. We worked with uh, Imperial Organic, Omega. Um, also, we got some, some yeast from the Contaminant li Library from Brewing Science Institute. Uh, so a lot of these strains are, are, are similar products. Uh, so we have some French Saisons in here, some Belgian Saison yeast, uh, as well as a couple other oddballs. One of the strains that we have is actually a Swiss lager yeast that does carry the STA1 gene. So uh, we've got a wide variety of organisms here. We also included a, a pair as controls, White Labs, California Ale yeast, and German lager yeast, just to make sure you know we were getting good results across the board for that all right um okay well kind of uh tell us where you started out with this experiment how did you how did you get started Sure. So, so first thing with, with our evaluation of the media, just kind of wanting to look at how do these yeast actually grow. And so we uh, started by taking a fairly high concentration of, of each of these yeast and seeing do they grow or not. And good thing is, by and large, yeah, they did. We, we only had one of the STA1 strains that we didn't have recovery of, and we had about a 50,000 colony forming units per milliliter. So 50,000 cells per mil, roughly. Um, certainly a number that's high enough to cause serious issues in a finished package product, um, but not something that would really be in the range of a, of a yeast pitch, per se. 
And uh, in that analysis, like I said, we did have one steering that we weren't able to get growth on. Um, we did also use, I, I don't think I mentioned this previously, we have a uh, Nocive Brewers Bacteria Agar. It's a product similar to the uh, NBB media that Dolar produces, but it's not as inhibitory towards yeast. Um, and that was kind of our control. So we looked at how did this grow on the FPDM versus how did it grow on our control media. And relatively speaking, we got roughly the same number of colonies on each of those, except for a few of the strains we noticed, hey, there's not quite as much growth here. So after that first step, I said, okay, well, let's look in uh, at this a little bit deeper. Let's dive in a little bit more and see, you know, if, if we're looking at, say, closer to 100 cells on a Petri dish, what kind of recovery are we going to get? Uh, when, it's, when it's closer to that you know, contamination level and maybe closer to our detection limits for some of this. And once we did that, we found, uh, this is actually really strange, what's going on? We only had two strains grow at that point. Um, and so that kind of started to really beg the question, well, what was different between that first round and the second round? Um, and what's going on with these, with these organisms and this media? Why, you know, the, the question at this point, we weren't really able to answer how to use the media because we couldn't get anything to grow. So that, that really became the, the main thing, and kind of trying to find the best practices for uh, what, what to do to, to make more uh, effective use of the FPDM. Can you talk a little bit more about what that percent recovery actually means? Sure. So, uh, like I said, I had uh, the Sigma MBB is my control medium, and I took a, basically what I did in my, in my entire plating regiment here was to pick a colony off of a Petri dish, uh, dilute it by a factor of about 10,000, um, because, you know, there's a couple million cells in that colony. We want to get down to that level where we're only seeing about 100 colonies on the Petri dish. And then what I did was I look at how many colonies do I have on my MBB media, how many colonies do I have on the FPDM media, and then just a simple ratio between those two. And then the nice thing about doing that is it helps kind of standardize the values because one yeast organism might grow, or, you know, I might pick one colony that had 250 colonies at the final dilution, and that's hard to compare to the one that only had 30 colonies after my final dilution. So looking at the percentage of, of colonies on, on the two media kind of gave us a relative way to compare them. Um, and also with some of the fur further work that we did looking at some of the timing of the, of the research. Okay. Um, let's talk a little bit more about some of those strange results that you got. Uh, anything else you want to say about that? Yeah. So the, 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 after this... You know, after that first step, we said, great, everything looks like it's growing well. Um, we kind of wanted to go back and look at that one strain that didn't and did a little bit more investigation there. Uh, but uh, the second round, like I said, the, the first thing that came to mind was, okay, well, I know that there's a 24-hour limit based on the manufacturer's recommendations. We're supposed to use it quicker than that. I said, oh, maybe I was too close to that 24-hour mark. You know, it's 25 hours or something. So I said, okay, let's redo this again, uh, making sure we keep that time shorter. And... Also, there were some questions about how I was preparing the media versus how Dr. Farber and, uh, his, and his students had prepared the media. And so uh, we, we started there um, looking at, is, is the age of the media the issue? And that was kind of the first thing that we did. So we took one of those two strains that actually were able to get some recovery on and just kind of focused on that. That happened to be WLP 565, the Belgian Cezanne one. And we saw that uh, it took a couple days to get this data all together. It didn't actually plate the same set of media every three hours because I, I, I do like to sleep in between my, my research. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, we found that, you know, actually it really wasn't a 24-hour window that we had to use this in. It was closer to uh, maybe 6 to 12-hour window. And we saw that at 12 hours the media really wasn't recovering any of that yeast anymore. Um, so that was a really big indicator to us. Okay, we have to change how we're handling this. Um, 
The next thing, the question that we had was, like I said, about preparation methods. Um, and since we were kind of doing this more in in-depth investigation, rather than trying to do this with all 30 strains in my library, we focused down to only three strains. We took that WLP 565 because we had seen good recovery on FPDM media and relatively poor recovery on the, on the LCSM that I had. Uh, we also chose another strain, the Imperial Organic Yeast uh, B64 Napoleon, which is a French Saison strain, specifically because it is a French Saison and because it had relatively good recovery on both of those media. Uh, the last one that we used was BSI STA1 Positive 8. Um, again, not a commercially available strain, part of the contaminant library. Uh, because that is a known over attenuator, uh, BSI sent me uh, results showing that it had 96% apparent attenuation. Uh, but we did see that it really didn't have very good resistance to cupric sulfate. It didn't grow well on either of our two media. Um, and so we picked those three because we had one that was good on LCSM, one that was good on FPD, FPDM, and one that was not good on either to try to see, okay, are some of these other prep methods coming into play here? Uh, and, and, you know, so the next step that we did was uh, comparing uh, my method of cooling the media post-autoclave to Matt's method. Uh, I have a water bath I hold at 55 degrees Celsius before I, I pour into petri dishes, uh, whereas Matt was using a stir plate at ambient temperatures and just uh, letting that get down to a temperature that was comfortable to handle. And uh, we looked at that to see if that was impacting uh, this, this you know, recovery past 12 hours issue. Uh, and what we found was it really didn't make too much of a difference. Uh, we, we still weren't getting recovery of our yeast at that 24-hour mark. The fresh media seemed like it was working fairly well. We, we, we got higher numbers than I had in some of my previous rounds of experimentation. Uh, but it didn't seem like the prep method was really the issue here. And then another thing that we were really focusing on there, too, was uh, maintaining that autoclave time. Because uh, there's some speculation between Dr. Farber and myself that uh, you know there could be something happening to the to the copper, you know, maybe the oxidation state of that copper is changing and that could potentially have caused some issues with um, how inhibited the yeast were. So that was really the main thing that we were looking at uh, with this first round of testing. And like I said, the temperature that was held post-autoclave didn't seem to make an impact. up. Copper sulfate may not be the best thing to use to, to try to isolate these yeast and you could get false negatives if that's, your, if that's your only methodology. I'm John Bryce and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. Support for this podcast is brought to you by ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, triclamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. Additional support provided by Bring the world to your brew house with BSG's diverse selection of ingredients and services. Our dedicated customer service team and industry experience provides you with the assistance you need every step of the way. 
Make BSG your supplier of choice with products essential to making great artisanal beverages so you can stay focused on your craft. Visit us at bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact us at 1-800-374-2739. Here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. The District St. Louis annual holiday party is December 6th. District Western New York meets at Resurgence Brewing Company in Buffalo December 10th. District St. Louis meets January 16th. District New England meets in Merrimack January 24th and 5th. The Ontario Technical Conference is January 29th to the 31st in Kingston. District St. Louis meets February 20th. District Northern California holds its Technical Conference February 27th and 28th in Sonoma County. One of our newest districts, District Great Plains, meets February 28th and 29th in Kansas City. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. back to the show. All right. So uh, obviously found that the media age was, was pretty important. Um, next, you ended, you ended up comparing the, um, the same media, but from different suppliers, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So this kind of brought up a question in my mind. Okay. So we've got, we're seeing some discrepancies here between what the recommended uh, age of the FPDM is. We also knew that a lot of the suppliers of LCSM say you're supposed to use that within a certain time frame as well. So I think the standard kind of accepted industry uh, usage for that media is within four days. And so um, I really want to look at, you know, since we saw that there was this drop-off with the FPDM, we actually also saw with that 24-hour testing uh, initially that there was a little bit of drop-off with the LCSM media as well. So uh, some of the past research that I had done uh, found an article from uh, Lynn himself uh, that he published back in the late 70s kind of showing that auger actually had a really big impact on the amount of crystal violet that he used in his Lynn's wild yeast media. So a little different than what we were talking about here, but he did see that one of the main ingredients for that product had a big impact over time. And so that was kind of a question. Well, maybe maybe there's something going on here with with where the constituents of these media are coming from. So I had Dr. Farber uh, prepare a sample of FPDM in his laboratory, and he sent that down to me. Uh, I also used the, the media that I had gotten from Weber, um, which is the commercially available version. I, I'm currently using, or had been currently using it with this research, uh, the Linz Kubrick sulfate media provided by, uh, or supplied by Brewer's Supply Group, which is the Siebel Institute formulation. And then I also compared that to the LCSM that Weber supplies. So, we were, you know, technically I really only should have had three different recipes that I was using. My MVB control recipe, the two different versions that should be the same recipe of FPDM and the two different recipes that should, or two different versions that should really be the same recipe for LCSM. So we wanted to see, okay, we've got these things, they're all similar, they're all making similar claims. Do they actually hold up over time? Uh, and do we see if there's differences in, in where those are, are coming from? And uh, yeah, sure enough, it, it actually did make a very big difference. Yeah, unpack what you, what you uncovered there a little bit. Sure, sure. So, 
we found that supplier had a very a very big impact. Um, the the Siebel Institute media seemed to have the best shelf life overall, where we were still getting recovery for our strains at the at the two day and and three day mark. But we really saw that regardless of where the media came from. We didn't get growth at, uh, very well at, at three or four days post-preparation. So that was kind of a universal thing for all three of those strains that we were working with. Uh, we did find that overall uh, the French Cezanne strain grew the best, um, but it still didn't really like the, the Weber-formulated FPDM. And the interesting thing there is um, that was really the only uh, strain that was able to grow on Matt's lab-formulated FPDM. Um, and so that was, you know, I think after doing that, it honestly raises more questions uh, than we really got answers. But at the very least, we saw a consistency between these rounds of results with, okay, we know that that zero to 24-hour time window is shorter than it really should be um, for, the, for the commercially available media. And I think the, we're going to have to go back to the drawing board a little bit and certainly some collaboration that uh, Dr. Farber and, uh, and Weber and, and myself are going to try to do for the Brewing Summit next year to try to investigate why are we seeing big differences between the lab formulation and the commercial formulation? Why are we seeing these differences between two different formulations of uh, LCSM? You know, those should, those should be going back from the same reference paper. So, so what is it there that's causing the, those differences? Um, and I, I think at this point we don't really know. We're not sure what optimization needs to happen. Um, but I think the other thing, too, uh, it really highlighted that, that that BSI strain still didn't really get good recovery on any of these media. And I think the big thing there, and so I have uh, one slide that I, that I presented on last year here uh, where I, I just use a yeast peptone dextrose agar as a base and added different concentrations of cupric sulfate media. And we saw that actually cupric sulfate isn't universally the silver bullet to isolate STA1 yeast. A lot of them were resistant to 250 ppm uh, in that media, but started to really drop off once you got to 300 and 350. Now, I know that LCSM and FPDM both have higher concentrations of cupric sulfate than that, but they also have some other compounds that are kind of interfering with how that copper inhibition is, is actually working on the cellular level, which, to be honest, we, we don't really know a lot about uh, the mechanism by that, which that works. Um, but yeah, so, it, so one thing that I really want to kind of highlight here is that actually copper sulfate may not be the best thing to use to, to try to isolate these yeast, and you could get false negatives if that's your, if that's your only methodology. Okay, that makes sense. All right, um, anything else that you uncovered, or do you want to uh, maybe uh, talk about some uh, any other big takeaways here that we learned? Absolutely, yeah. So um, one, one nice thing, uh, I'm not the only person who has these findings, uh, actually, uh, Someone that I uh, hadn't worked with initially, but have kind of worked with a little bit more in the interim, uh, Laura Burns with Omega Yeast. Uh, she had also done with, with the strains that they had in their library, which also are shared in mine, uh, some, some research showing that, yeah, we're seeing these similar recovery issues. Um, and, and she also did some cool stuff where she took that Lynn's Cupric Sulfate Media recipe and kind of optimized it for her set of STA1 yeast. And so I shared that because that seems, you know, I haven't validated it myself, but she's done some good, some good research there. To show, so kind of sharing that one for the crowd, but um, yeah, really highlighting that um, there are definitely are some lot to lot variations with these media. Uh, you definitely have to make sure anytime you get a new set in that you validate it with strains. You know, looking for those, looking for positive growth where you do expect positive growth. Make sure you don't get background growth from your house strains, and um, 
yeah, make sure you're using it fresh because we really do see drop off of, of recovery after that 48 hour mark pretty much universally for, for what we were investigating here. And also that autoclave process being pretty important too. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's something that I would love to try to, to look at more and, and see if maybe we can even, if, if shortening that autoclave time uh, will actually help us get better recovery over time and not have the risk of cross-contamination or improper sterilization. I guess just as a quick aside, there has been some, some really neat research that was done recently. I'm not sure if it's been published yet, so I don't want to completely spill the beans. But I think we're kind of honing in a little bit more on why there are differences between the rate at which over-attenuation occurs. Um, there's some research done that showed that there's actually a deletion in the STA1 gene in the promoter region for some of these yeasts. So that, that promoter region is what's going to activate or not activate the, the protein to be produced. And so if there's issues with how that's being promoted, you probably don't get the same amount of protein produced. And that's why we think some of these strains that are causing attenuation after two weeks or longer uh, are, are, are still going to cause an issue because they have the STA1 gene. But I think that's, that seems to be in correlation with why we're seeing differences. And so at least that, that part of the question seems to have been answered. But yeah, I'd really love to see specifically if there's any correlation with whether that region is deleted and we do get good or recovery on these different media or not. And, uh, you know, really, really dive a little bit deeper into how, how they're actually consuming sugars in finished packaged beer and, you know, try to do some more investigation on some potential enrichment broths or uh, selective uh, broths that, and, and augers that could be used. That was Matt Linsky live from the 2019 Master Brewers Conference in Calgary. To get a copy of Matt's presentation and all the other outstanding posters and presentations from Calgary, download your copy of the conference proceedings at mbaa.com. Don't forget to ask your district officers if you can help them get those district presentations uploaded to the archive. And drop me a line if you think there's a presenter we should have on the show. All the links you need are in the show notes. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, ABS, Proximity Malt, and BSG. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Okay.